0: Good evening. Welcome to the first July session of three of our book school two thousand and seven. You probably think you're here for one purpose tonight, but you are in fact here for two purposes. One is to hear a lecture by Ian Willison, who has been a driving force behind the care and feeding of research and rare book libraries for uh, a great many more decades than many of you have been on this earth. But we have also to present Ian with a fest in his honor, which has been long in the making under the editor Wallace Kearsap, and his associate, Meredith Sherlock, at the Center for the Book in Monash University. The contributors to the Festschrift include David McKittrick, Dennis Rhodes, Paul Hunter, Michael Suarez, Richard Landon, Warwick Gould, Peter Davison, Simon Elliott, Keith Maslin, Robin Alston, Graham Shaw, Sarah Tayak, Bernhard Fabian, and Wallace Kirsoft. And I have these in it as well. And you will, I'm sure, be able to prize this copy out of Ian Willison's hands long enough to take a look at it yourselves or at the rare book school copy during the reception that follows this lecture. Otherwise, it's the usual introduction. Here's Ian Willison brave New World, or Mere Anarchy, Reflections on the Revolution in National Research Librarianship. It's a great pleasure to welcome him back for the 10th or 11th time, I think, as a Red Book School lecturer
1: Thank you. Good. Professor Bellinger, ladies and gentlemen, I am greatly honored to receive this first shift under the auspices of the Rare Book School, and in particular, to receive it in Thomas Jefferson's Rotunda, the original iconic site of his university library. Moreover, as the principal founder of the Library of Congress, I believe Jefferson would have approved my attempt at a review of the three great research, uh, national research libraries, the British Museum Library, the Library of Congress and the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, a review in their broad cultural and political context. I begin then with the ancien régime, since I'm supposed to be talking about revolutions, represented by the reading room of the British Museum uh, Library, designed by the first great principal librarian, Antonio Panizzi, modelled, as was this rotunda, on the Roman pantheon. It was opened in 1857, and around its powerful ambience, almost a century later, I spent the first 34 years of my professional life. Now that is in... uh, I have to apologise that we have to use handouts. I have no visual aid. So handout number one is taken from the Illustrated London News of 1857 and is one of the classic, slightly exaggerated uh, engravings, uh, wood engravings of the uh, British Museum Reading Room as opened then. Uh, Let me just collate my own set. I start with two quotations. Now they are on uh, two paragraphs in handout 2. Um, It's slightly confusing because after handout one, the clip, there's another picture of the British Museum reading room that I wish I could hold back to the end, um, but I can't. So it's the next couple of paragraphs. First, Ansel was in his favourite haunt, the reading room of the British Museum. In that book encircled space, he could always find peace. He loved to see the volumes rising tier above tier into the misty dome. He loved the chairs that glide so noiselessly and the radiating desk and the central area where the catalogue shelves curve round the superintendent's throne. There he knew that his life was not ignoble. Now the mention of Ansel indicates this comes from E.M. Forster's Longest Journey, a novel published in 1907. It is not mere purple prose. Forster just didn't do that sort of thing. And I can vouch for the authenticity of Forster's evocation, quote, in that book encircled space, um, he could always find peace. For every time you entered the British Museum reading room, you were visited, you were, by what the contemporary of Anselm's, one Sigmund Freud, called the oceanic feeling of the presence in the room around you and in the stacks adjacent to the room of what one might call the whole world textual archive from east as well as west in cuneiform, manuscript including Sanskrit, map, musical score, drawing as well as all the varieties of print newspapers, ephemera, as well as books. But let us once focus down ...from the noble panorama... ...onto a typical reader... ...and his actual, actual daily practice... ...that is my second quotation... ...when I'm in London... ...I always work here in the British Museum Library... ...it's a remarkable institution... ...in the shortest time... ...you will be given information on any question... ...and on which books you can find material... ...on subjects you are interested in... ...here every reader has a separate place... ...where can lay out in any way he likes... ...the books he's ordered... ...excerpts, notes and so on... ...you order books... And they are brought to you almost immediately. For work on the sources in any language I I will need in the future, I cannot imagine a better place than the library of the British Museum. That is in fact Lenin. But I could have been, say, Sir Sidney Lee, sitting near to Lenin, we assume, editing the definitive dictionary of national biography. Their common factor as readers being that both needed exhaustive access to the textual archive to achieve the intellectual self-confidence based on the assemblage of hard fact, whether to consolidate the fragile imperial cultural establishment, thus the DNB, or totally to subvert it. Lenin in particular, as a serious encyclopedic reader, Envisaging a major, indeed world shaking project, whether we approve of it or not, was in the great tradition of what the French called philosophes, agents of, I'm quoting de Tocqueville, agents of abstract literary politics, which went back to Voltaire, Diderot, and the encyclopedist of pre revolutionary France and its Bibliothèque du Roi at that time, and which In many, if not most ways, certainly included Thomas Jefferson, as we know, for example, from his correspondence with John John Adams and others up to the end of his life. From the practice of Lenin, Lee and other readers of the time, we can see three distinctive features of the National Research Library in its classic phase of development. First, the archive, the textual archive, is essentially intertextual. In Panitz's words, one book leads to another, though by no means directly so. To omit the exploration, in Lenin's words, of any question you are interested in, and almost, imme- and almost immediately so, the whole archive, the whole archive, has to be constantly present for experimental searching and reading, not even a fraction of it being away on loan. A national research library has to be what the Germans called a Präsenzbibliothek, self-sufficient, autarkic. Panizzi made and enforced a radical distinction between a national library for research, these are his words, and his words again, libraries for education, that is, public libraries, lending libraries, then about to surge outside and well as within the metropolis. Second, the whole available archive now greatly magnified and destabilized by the industrial revolution in text production involving newspapers and other ephemera as well as uh, indeed even in more than books had to be made accessible so far as a national component was concerned through state enforced legal deposit of uh, the, the national output and for foreign literatures by state finance purchase. Panizzi's epoch-making success in this respect depended on his associating the essential interests of the museum with that of the British national interest in leading the competition, cultural as well as political, for imperial hegemony among European states. Paris, he once famously proclaimed, must be surpassed. And this had, he had to do especially in the minds of senior political figures of the time, with more than a few of whom he made it his business, as a natural man of affairs, to be personally acquainted. Second, Third, the traditional subject classified catalogue of the prestigious Bibliothèque Nationale, deriving from the Cartesian, well, Mandarin intellectual organisation of Le grand siècle of the 17th century, and still favoured by European scientific establishments, such as the Royal Society, was proving quite incapable of controlling, and therefore making accessible to readers, this new mass of ephemeral sub-Mandarin material now entering the archive. Panitzi's third great achievement, then, was the establishment against determined opposition of the Royal Society, the premier learned society of the time, no British Academy then, establishment of the theory and the practice of the bibliographical fine meshed alphabetic general catalogue exhaustive but still accessible under the hand so to speak of the individual reader on Forster's catalogue shelves that curve to user-friendly effect around the superintendent's throne. In general The distinctly bibliographical expertise, analytic in our terms, and historical required for constructing this exhaustive but precise general catalogue marked the foundation of modern, professional, uh, technological, innovative research, librarianship, and curatorship as the indispensable mediator, so to speak, if I may use the phrase, between the textual archive and the world of learning. This mediation was essentially ongoing between the individual reader and the superintendent of the reading room on his throne. This super, the, the superintendent of the latest 19th century was again famously Richard Garnet. The Ransom Center at Austin, Texas has a signed photograph given by Karl Marx to Garnet. Now this we can hardly say is to Dick from Charlie, but it does argue substantial mutual regard, and that's very important. Other people of the time, uh, most famously Samuel Butler, but Ford Maddox Ford, Joseph Conrad, many of the literary uh, uh, men of the literary life of the late 19th century were in the reading and related to Richard Garnett in particular. Garnett then edited his general catalogue for publication as a first step towards a complete. Mediation with the world of learning, extramurally, so to speak, by publication. It provided the first step towards the ideal, as the jargon of the time called it, universal catalogue, or what has become known now as universal bibliographical control. Further, only a few years later, the museum began to, the publication of the first of its special nor focused catalogues such as the British Museum catalogue of 15th century books edited by Garnet's protégé A. W. Pollard. These catalogues brought to bear the highly detailed bibliographical fact and, most most important, curatorial interpretative expertise on major issues in cultural history, on the macro scale, shall we say, the High Renaissance and the Proto-Reformation, this being 15th century books. And this led to Pollard's bringing bibliographical evidence to bear at the macro, micro level to help solve what his collaborator in the academy, Walter Gregg, called the editorial problem in Shakespeare and Shakespeare's contemporaries, a problem that had been central to, central, central to English literary scholarship since the 18th century. Then, through his secretaryship of the new bibliographical society, Pollard extended what we might term on its extramural extramural push by making the library's own special catalogue of books to 1640 the core of again the first step in what became retrospective universal bibliographical control. That is uh, the short title catalogue of English books to 1640, the famous STC. All this marked the beginnings in Britain of the discipline of historical bibliography and, what's very important, the history of the book. But, excuse me, but Pott extended Garnet's extramural push even furtherly, and importantly, out towards the general public, with bibliographical sophisticated exhibition catalogues celebrating high-profile tercentenaries, such as the publication King James's Bible, 1911, Shakespeare's First Folio, tercentenary 1923. And even more pregnant with the future, he proposed a national loan collection, Complementary to the Autarchic British Museum Library, to support the public libraries of education, in Francis's phrase, in themselves seeking truly universal access to the archive. Finally, the classic status of the British Museum Library can be seen its impact in Europe, in the introduction of the alphabetic catalogue at long last, after early 16th century, into the Bibliothèque Nationale itself. And the replication of the iconic reading room in the modernized Royal Library in Berlin. Then, outside Europe, among, cu- among cultural entrepreneurs in the newer English-speaking world overseas, we have the replication of the British Museum reading room in the building of the State Library of Victoria in Gold Rush, Melbourne, under Sir Edmund Barry, and in the reconstruction of the Library of Congress in post-Civil War Washington under Ainsworth Rand Spofford. All these, even the Library of Congress, we can interpret as conspicuous and permanent celebrations of mature 19th century liberal cultural imperialism. However, and I have here to come to the anarchy of my title, a crisis in the brave new world of Panitzean National Library autarky had become evident already by the end of the 19th century. There was a decline from the high noon of empire. So far as the British Museum Library was concerned, this was presaged by Lord Randolph Churchill's budget cut of 1886, the year of the so-called geological shift in British politics associated, among other things, with the split within the establishment of Irish home rule. The annual purchase grant of the Department of uh, uh, Printed Books in the BM was reduced by 40%. Second. Largely due to the prestige of the German doctrine and practice of nationwide scholarship, Wissenschaft, particularly after the Franco-Prussian War, scholars began to be employed not only in the, uh, began to be employed not only in more fully research-oriented schools and institutes such as the London School of Economics, with their own research libraries, such as. British Library of Economic and Political Science at the LSE, but also in the new Civic Universities of the Midlands and the north of England. first Manchester, followed closely by Birmingham, Leeds, Liverpool, all no longer within easy reach of the BM Library. Moreover, so far as primary texts for scholarship were concerned, the new awareness of the importance of bibliographical evidence, which the great high Victorian enterprises based in the museum, such as the Dictionary of National Biography and done much to bring about began to require a far greater intensity but also immediacy of local access to a complete European as well as national textual archives which no one central library could any longer provide from its own collections in isolation thus the acquisition of the John Rylands Library in Manchester the effect of such thickening of the textual basis of humanistic scholarship was aggravated by the further surge in current book ephemera and serial production, an aspect of mass cultural democracy at the end of the 19th century, associated with Nunes and Northcliffe in Britain and Curtis and Pulitzer in the United States. This challenged the will of the BUM trustees both to widen the enforcement of the provisions for legal deposit and to hold the Treasury to its commitment to finance current foreign and general British as well as European retrospective purchases after the shock of 1886. By 1935, an authoritative surveys of libraries in Europe as a whole could insist that the mass of printed literature is now so great that, less than ever before, is any library now able from its own stock to satisfy all readers. There are probably at least 30 million different works in existence. The greatest library in the world, the British Museum, has perhaps hardly one in ten of these. It was therefore becoming clear that the only solution to the problem of bibliographical control of this relentlessly proliferating textual archive was to incorporate the autonomous national and other research libraries into a national, indeed international, library network. This would provide the supplementary national loan service required by and now by scholars as well as laymen, based on the universal catalogue envisaged by Garnet and Pollard.
0: And
1: Nevertheless, after the publication of the general catalogue of being completed in nineteen oh five, the British Museum entered a half century I don't know, of what can only be described as, if not anarchy, then serious and deepening introversion, reflecting the moral I think the moral exhaustion of the post war twenties and in particular the totalitarian, totalitarian threatening thirties in interwar Britain. Responsibility for the first step in systematic retrospective unif- uh, bibliographical control of the National Text Archive, the short title catalogue of 1640, was, as we have seen, devolved to the enthusiastic members, right, the amateur, of Pollard's Bibliographical Society. In 1929, the British Museum trustees rejected the approach to administer the National Central a lending library made by the Board of Education's Public Library Committees, the chairman of which was their own director, Sir Frederick Kenyon, and Perot's friend and ally. This refusal had the effect, among other things, of obliging the independent Science Museum Library under the direction of the innovative S. C. Bradford, sensitive to the move in national interest from the humanities to to the sciences, natural sciences, in the threatening 30s, to take over national leadership in scientific documentation and service to users, again greatly pregnant with the future, as we shall see. Finally, when I arrived in the library in 1953, the necessary vision of Garnet's great general catalogue was about to be abandoned. How far did it got? It got to the letter D. It was this that was a coup de grâce for the Ancien Régime, and the last great figure in the history of the British Museum Library Frank Francis, my, my first boss, was about to turn what he called the, quote, buoyancy and verve and confidence of the Library of Congress for exemplarity in the necessary revolution in national research librarianship, which, to which we must now, in our second part, turn. After being set up by Spofford as a de facto national library, it was seen that the buoyancy and verve and competence of the Library of Congress was to depend largely on the library being, in the words of Justice Frankfurter to Franklin Roosevelt, quote, the great centre of the cultural resources of the nation, whole nation, in the technological setting of the time. Over the long haul, it was and has been the technological innovation that sustained the buoyancy of the library. From Herbert Putnam's printing of continent-wide distribution of LC catalog cards, it's the distribution. Um, it's by automation through the machine-readable catalog mark program. The James Billington's progressive digitizing of the National Archive. The Internet now. We might say that the necessary favorable geopolitical context was of all this: the advance of the United States of America from original creative. Periphery, a long time ago, in the English speaking world to post imperial global culture and centre. Post imperial global centre. Specifically, then, the buoyancy and verve and competence of the Library of Congress might be seen to have originated in what Howard Mumford Jones has called the Age of Energy following the American Civil War. Moreover, in contrast to the otherwise comparable. In part derivative from the USA, developments in the library system of the later subcontinental USSR, under the central command of Lenin and, and Gaia, American pragmatic cultural nationalism was and has remained essentially pluralist and interactive in its organization involving local library consortia, publishers, and corporate philanthropy, represented by Carnegie, Rockefeller, later Ford. In the words of the New Cambridge History of American Literature, it was, and I quote, high culture that was America's messianic and imperial culture in the later 19th century. And its proponents were the builders of monumentalized cultural institutions, museums, orchestras, libraries, and their architects, such as the energetic Stanford White, who monumentalized this rotunda, now restored, thank God, and eventually got shot. i now summarise from Jane Aiken Rosenberg's excellent study of Herbert Putnam. Putnam was the first librarian of Congress and the first administrator of any national research library to be recruited from the relatively new, largely anglophone, free public lending lending library movement, a movement that had been promoted in the progressive form of periphery, the US, uh, after its civil war, far more effectively, though Almost in parallel than had been the case in the former imperial centre, Britain. Putnam projected the Library of Congress and with it national research librarianship onto a new path, which he defined as a nationalisation of the research library, not in terms of classical autarky, but in terms of, and I quote, extending the benefits of its collections and its technical processes, key phrase, to the country at large. ...through the libraries, which are the local centres of research involving the use of books. However, as Putnam further developed the outreach functions of the Library of Congress... ...as a national institution of genteel high culture, the imperial, the uh, messianic imperial culture... um, ...attracting scholarly consultants to interpret the ever-deepening collections in, in classical mode... ...as well as commissioning musical works and performances he found himself distanced from an increasing culturally demotic, so to speak, public library movement that aimed to make the Library of Congress the agency of a New Deal library ethos concerned with, and I quote uh, Jane Rosenberg, leisure time, cultural, social, educational activities, and no longer simply with a public of serious investigators. When Putnam retired in 1939... Continue with Rosenberg. His major accolades came from scholarly groups such as the American Council of Learner Societies and the American Historical Association rather than from the professional library community. The Library of Congress then entered its classic era of national and international leadership as part of the rapidly enlarging American preponderance, as the French phrase is, in the world after 1941 with President Sir Franklin Roosevelt's controversial appointments two years earlier of, his, of the non-professional, eminently public poet Archibald MacLeish as Putnam's successor, um, followed by his appointment in 1944 of MacLeish as Assistant Secretary of State for Cultural and Public Affairs, closely involved with the Roosevelt administration's promotion of the New World Order of the United Nations, and specifically in MacLeish's case, um, uh, its Education, Scientific and Cultural Agency, UNESCO. MacLeish's successor as Librarian of Congress and a Truman nominee, Luther Evans, became the second Director General of UNESCO in 1953, confirming the serious involvement of the United States in that then pioneering global cultural organisation and the political implications of which, at the time, in the light of subsequent uh, United States disillusion, are, I think, interesting. The whole American pre-war national published archive and overseas acquisitions have been found to be dangerously inadequate for servicing the radical expansion and deepening of the former largely peripheral involvement in world military, political, and cultural affairs of the USA. And such, incidentally, a sense of inadequacy has been the case with the holdings of the unreformed British Museum and Library, analysed to a very great effect by Panizzi in 1842. A new doctrine was defined by Evans after victory in 1945. No spot in, on the earth's surface is any longer alien to the interests of the American people. No particle of knowledge should remain unavailable to them. Now, the execution of such doctrine required the association of the Library of Congress with an increasingly articulated subcontinental library system as a whole, and in particular to the development of a new collaborative acquisition and cataloging strategy necessary to reinforce adequate bibliographical control of this expanding archive. The remarkable success of this push can be said to mark what has been called the second stage in the development of national libraries, so called the cooperative library. Now, the statistics are well known and impressive. By 1958, a total of 8, now let's get this right, 819,022 books and periodical volumes of European wartime production distributed to 113 libraries. By 1971, uh, uh, under the, um, the okay, uh, I have to uh, you will pardon me but do you remember in Charlie Chaplin's was it Moonlight where he is playing and uh, who is it not Edward Everett Horton uh, but somebody picks up the music and it all falls on the floor well, I feel rather like that unfortunate gentleman uh, 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 just Yes. Oh well. (sighs) Now, oh, you take that. Public Law Law 480 program. More than 14 million items, mainly from political underlined countries of third world, were distributed to 41 major research libraries. This, after, was the euphoric aid of them. Age of the Marshall Plan, but far more epoch-making was the implication of wartime developments in automated data processing associated with Vannevar Bush and the Office of Scientific Research and Development to produce cooperative machine reading, cataloging, mark—that is, of these vast accession, of these vast accessions first pronounced feasible by IBM in 1964 and integrated into international as well as national cooperative practice as a consequence of the national program of acquisitions and cataloguing impact. Its formal adoption by the International Federation of Library Associations, IFLA, a non-UNESCO government organization, as central to its program for universal bibliographical control, UBC, finally launched collaborative control of the whole textual archive globally and permanently, regardless regardless of exponentially growing production. It was further central to the basic UNESCO General Information Programme, PGI. I apologize for all these acronyms. They are, after all, emblematic (coughs) of the particular brave new world now. The Belgian Royal Librarian, IFLA president and godfather of UBC, Universal Bibliographical Control, Hermann Liebes, confessed that like his former colleague and friend on the international scene, Frank Francis, he was more than little motivated by his love affair with the Library of Congress. And I hope this breathless summary has suggested why in an age of cultural democracy then it was a buoyant library of congress that had first achieved what appeared to be classical status um, uh, uh, influencing for example the processes leading to the establishment of national libraries and national library services in other polities, countries involved evolving from within the former british imperial periphery australia canada new zealand and outside the english-speaking world by the library being involved involved in modernizing, cataloguing practice in the Vatican Library and to help amalgamate the Diet and Imperial Libraries in Japan. However, when I say however, it means anarchy is coming. With the establishment of the United States as a major world power after 1945, its characteristic interactive and pluralist arrangements in matters of national high culture seem to undergo considerable strain. Often, as a function of the growing tension between strong—or would be strong—even visionary presidents Kennedy, the New Frontier; Johnson, the Great Society; Carter—and the sectionalized grassroots Congress, the proposal for a formal, a formal de jure, supposed de facto national library and information network in the United States developed during the expansive Kennedy, Johnson, and Carter administrations, were lost in the Congressional financial retrenchments of the 1970s. In the words of the original statement fathered by the shrewdest of the post-war librarians of Congress, L. Quincy Munford, the Johnson's National Advisory Committee on Libraries, the one thing needful was, quote, a felt demand from the country strong enough to convince Congress to vote for the funds required for the full, full support of a national library as well as of Library Congress functions. And in contrast to the progressive age of energy, there was little such felt demand at the grassroots level, it would seem. In this context, the establishment in 1972 of the British Library, the succession of the British Museum Library, following the official report of a, of a some Libraries committee under Dr. F. Stainton, a professor of chemistry, be it noted, a former professor of chemistry, with national responsibilities, not only for collection, development, conservation, bibliographical control, and interlending, and not only in the humanities, but also with the arrival of so-called big science in science and technology, all homogenised effectively under unified, if indirect, ministerial control, was, to the present historian of the Library of Congress, a political achievement of considerable magnitude. If he still stands by that remark. Um, With the subsequent setting up on a similar political basis of the new Bibliothèque Nationale de France, and last year, 2006, after a century or more of indecision of the Deutsche Nationalbibliothek, German National Library, this marked the somewhat belated return of the initiative in national library development to a, not so recently, traumatized Europe uh, 1972, 75, and 1945, and its cultural, political, post-imperial and far more deliberately science and technology based reconstruction however again, the matter was by no means so simple as that particularly in britain as newly released records now show the proposals of the british museum director frank francis and the trustees to the dainton committee however well updated but nevertheless politically and ruthlessly marginalised by the new men, such as the chemist, Dayton himself, of the new post-imperial, self-consciously scientific and technological establishment, celebrated famously by C.P. Snow's Two Cultures and the Scientific Revolution. And Snow became Minister of State at this time, promoting the government's um, uh, policy in this respect they, the new men, rejected the British Museum represented by what they termed Sir Frank, quote, Sir Frank Francis's conception of the National Library and Archive as a museum of literature and manuscripts and not as a working library with a clearly defined set of uses. Their success was represented initially by placing a large, and I have to say highly articulate cuckoo in the traditional nest, the National Lending Library for Science and technology, that was in Yorkshire, not in London, greatly expanded from Bradford's pre-war science museum library that I've mentioned. For a number of years after the opening of the British library, one has to say there was an anarchic conflict between Snow's two cultures, only revolved slowly, if, if I may say so steadily, by the traditional British museum library people, such as myself, deciding that, if you can't beat them, then join them. From my point of view, this took and is taking the form of infiltrating the new citadel of automated universal bibliographical control by initiating, on the basis of the rare book collections of the British and other research libraries elsewhere, the enormous task of extending UBC, Universal Bibliographical Control, retrospectively to cover the whole of the World Textual Archive. And this is in collaboration with the traditional world of learning but now with its own new historicism and its sensitivity to the material conditions of text public production. That's a subject for another lecture, i fear We thereby do reintegrate the museum of literature and manuscripts with a working library with a clearly defined set of uses, as in fact had been envisaging Garnet and Pollard's original agenda. We began in the 1970s by extending, on a machine-readable and collaborative basis, and at maximum speed, I have to say, to forestall central bureaucratic interference, it was the heir of Margaret Thatcher, Pollard's original and Donald Wing's subsequent short title early English language catalogue project, 1475-1700, we extended that into the vast takeoff period of the 18th century, the 18th century short title catalogue, the ESTC. We followed this with an extension of Pollard's concerns into Europe, first with the incunable short title catalogue, uh, 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 based on the Union Catalogue in Berlin, and then the European European hand printed book project up to 1820. Both, however, driven by the British Library's incunabulist Lottie Hellinger. Finally, we have moved into the whole world archive, starting with the South Asian and Retros- Burma South Asian and Burma retrospective bibliography to 1800. Sam In the hands of the head of the British Library's Africa, Asia and Pacific collections, Graham Shaw. I'll come back to him later on. All this consolidated IFLA's interest in retrospective universal bibliographical control, now blessed with an acronym, RUBC, as the administratively logical completion of UBC. At the same time, the ESTC and its progeny, following the other pioneering interest of Pollard's in particular, consolidated the power of the history of the book as an emerging key discipline within these globalizing new historical humanities offering a statistical and trade-wise trade-wise base, much envied by the French historian, historians of the book thus the force of the contributions of Hellinger and her colleagues to the Renaissance Reformation volume of the Cambridge History of the Book in Britain, Graham Shaw's leading role in planning the history of the book in India as a whole, Um, and last week the publication of the first systematic collaboration between the British library's curators and the world of learning at large on the global interaction between the textual archive and literary Cultures, this is literary cultures and the material book I've just published. This essential contribution to the developing and its and in it, its way revolutionary study of globalization in history is, in the words of Robert Darnton's preface to the book itself, quote, a high point in the history of book history. The third and its final stage in the whole process that we've been considering is for the National Research Library to mediate not only between the textual archive, the scholar and the serious reader but also between the archive and the layman. This mediation in the context of a rapidly maturing globalised consumer society and revolution in communication technology. In particular the National Research Library, the Research Library has to present to the layman a sense of the whole textual archive by exhibitions and museums of the book and other forms of text and by helping to advance and popularise the key intellectual discipline in this respect, the history of the book and other forms of text. Now, the pioneer in this stage was the last great innovator in our sequence, though not, I fear, uh, widely enough known to an anglophone audience Julien Caen Caen was head of the Bibliothèque Nationale from 1930 to 1940 as such he was a conspicuous very conspicuous figure um, during the abortive Front Populaire Popular Front of 1935 to 37. noted for its campaign for the cultural democratisation of France as a response to the threatening 30s haunted by fascist Italy Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. After forced retirement and imprisonment as a Jew from from 1945 to 1964, he largely designed and was in charge of the new national library system, set up as part of the remarkable quick post-war cultural reconstruction, as well as economic and political reconstruction, of France begun By the first de Gaulle administration, and in many ways carrying on from the Front Populaire, Caen was a library-based cultural administrator of Panizzian stature, executing an integrated plan, plan d'ensemble, he calls it, that was typical of what we have to call, I think, top-down French cultural democracy, rather distinctive, by giving priority to the organisation at ministerial level of intellectual life as a whole. It was represented by the Encyclopédie Française, launched in 1935 by a government group of which Kant was part, echoing the great pre-1789 Encyclopédie of Diderot and d'Alembert, and deliberately confronting the ideological Italian Soviet encyclopedias of the time. So far as the public understanding of, quote, Material conditions of intellectual life, and in particular, again, quote the sociological and economic aspect of the book were concerned. Julien Care found that, quote, practically everything still remained to do in the form of a large-scale and definite, in form of large-scale and definitive treatment. Having helped through his own strong ministerial connections to his, install Lucien Fèvre, the maverick leader of the new social and economic history, now known as the New History, La Nouvelle Histoire, as the general editor, the Dido of the uh, Encyclopédie Francaise, Kain himself edited the required volume, number eighteen, on the history of the book and other forms of text, La Civilisation Écrite, Written Civilization. Pursuing this general line, um, after the war, can introduced his Protégé en Jean Matin to le saint to collaborate on *La l'apparition du livre published in 1959 this of course was the, began the formal establishment of the history of the book as an integral part of the new history in the world of lining. However in addition to complete the whole top down mission by demonstrating to the lay public the materialities of literature analysed by the history of the book Quint, Julien Quint, created the innovatory display techniques of the Musée de la Littérature for the likewise politically confrontational Paris International Exhibition 1937. And on the next uh, handouts uh, 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 there's just two pictures of, uh, which I hope reasonably clear, the uh, amount of effort that's gone into presentation. It was, of course time, 1937, really quite revolutionary. Um, He then proceeded to a sequence of exhibitions, which in fact constituted definitive bibliographical studies. This again was revolutionary or innovatory. The range of the sequence was then greatly and rapidly expanding critically to cover high profile grand themes, including uh, not just author uh, uh, exhibition catalogues, including in 1951, in collaboration with Frank Francis at the British Museum, the largest exhibition of English book of the English book hitherto anywhere in the world, including Britain. And this was a year, remember, of the Festival of Britain. I mean, it was presumably our um, heritage, but uh, the, as far as the printed book was concerned, Kant did it, and he received um, the uh, was awarded the British uh, KBE as a result. After his death, the sequence culminated in the stupendous, <laughs> really large, opening exhibition catalogue of the Bibliothèque Nationale de France in 1996 called Tous les Savoirs du Monde, Encyclopédie Bibliothèque de Sumer, 20e siècle. And that's in the next uh, handout. Uh, and I apologize for it being three sheets, I think it is. First of all, a very grandiose title page, but then... What's so revealing is the content of that exhibition and the contribution of over 20 scholars to a catalogue that, believe me, is big. Uh, Drop it on your foot, which I have done. It's painful. This finally established our current policy of grand, seminal, and cosmopolitan exhibitions with massive, definitively researched catalogues published catalogues, but also systematic extramural presentation, not only through book publication, but also through schools and the media. Thus, currently, and if I may say so sensationally, the British Library exhibition, which is the next handout, called Sacred, the World's Greatest Collection of Jewish, Christian and Muslim Books. This is part of the British Library's long-term plans to feature world faiths which are represented within its collections. And it is the policy inevitably involved with open government support and religious support too in the big issue of the present day, the text-based militant religious fundamentalism and represents a, a core, what has been called a core tenet, tenet, a multicultural Britain, the idea that citizens may be educated, citizens may be educated in tolerance. Now we come to the end. If exhibitions have moved into a brave new world, can we identify yet another anarchy, new anarchy? Here we have to look at the effect of the sea change in the whole financial base of the National Library and other libraries since the deregulation of the global stock market between the 1960s and 70s and 80s and its hostility to government deficit spending this has meant that particularly in the english speaking world to quote a recent british library chief executive uh, uh, brian lang quote national governments are increasingly reluctant to invest in public projects when private finance might be available to share and sometimes underwrite the risk so libraries are required to look for new ways funding library and information projects, which involve revenue earning and partnerships with commercial organizations that regard information as a resource to be priced. And I just say that if you look at the last few chapters of the new Cambridge History of Libraries, Volume 3, you'll find some rather miserable, sad comments by um, library historians on this uh, sea change. Or, in the words of James Billington's Library of Congress American Memory Program, national libraries have increasingly to look for the, quote, support of entrepreneurial and philanthropic leadership. Hence, control of exhibitions, you go back you remember to Gardner and Pollard and Shakespeare and the Bible, in the British Library is uh, uh, in the hands of a directorate that, believe it or not, is called for strategic marketing marketing and communication, headed by a recruit from the world of management and investment consultancy, Ernst & Young. One might compare the effect of all this with the effect of the takeover of creative editing by marketing within current media-driven globalised publishing. That is to say, an almost frenetic market-driven increase in sheer activity, turnover, threatening, inevitably, if unintentionally, to a compulsive, even claustrophobic, perhaps dumbing down, across the whole range of the now vastly more accessible archive in its broadest sense. Thus, if you will see from page 3 of the publicity leaflet for the sacred exhibition, we have, and I quote, an afternoon of free activities, which takes you on a creative journey inspired by the Jewish, Christian and Muslim faiths. Workshops, food, crafts, with a mesmerising whirling dervish dance, bringing a day of celebration to an extraordinary end, unquote. The whirling dervish dance, I may say, took place just outside a British library reading room. Lord knows what Richard Garnett would have made of it. Lord knows even less what Garnet would have made of his own old British reading room being invaded by a Chinese army this September. That's a, the second um, uh, a photograph of, them, of the reading room. Even if, if only in terracotta, sponsored by the banking conglomerate Morgan Stanley. Now, the actual layout of that exhibition is absolutely embargoed, so we've got a artist to take the advance announcement and produce a fantasy, uh, which is what that is on the floor of the uh, reading room. In its way, it's a powerful icon, we use the phrase, of the common end of cultural empires, Chinese as well as British, European. I conclude, the production of the textual archive is now almost running amok, a few days at midnight in the university bookshop here and hundreds of all, bookshops all over the world, not the second but the seventh coming of Harry Potter will be proclaimed Can intellectual control over the production of the archive be reinstated? Yes, among other things by the deep sobering perspective of the history of the book I've been outlining and other people are outlining, um, Being presented, the perspective being presented to the citizenry as well as to the archive professionals directly by publication. Harry Potter will have a section in the final volume of the history of the book in Scotland. J.K. Rowling being a good Edinburgh girl. And by exhibition. The latter strategy might be assisted through rare book school courses on the history and practice of book exhibitions. All this can and should be based on the continuing viability of Thomas Jefferson's optimistic belief in the inevitably upward progress of the human spirit as embodied in the textual archive and sustained by the oceanic feeling. As he wrote to John Adams from Monticello on September the 4th, 1823, the light which has been shed on mankind by the art of printing has eminently changed the condition of the world. And, while printing is preserved, that light can no more recede than the sun return on his
0: course.